Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for this opportunity to go to your word. I thank you for the opportunity to see how your truth has been embedded into songs that we sing and that you have given us the gift of these melodies to to stick that truth to our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray you would do that this morning. I pray, Lord, you would make it clear to us the, the gift that we have in Christ, the solace and the comfort and the peace that we have in him, that he is our exceeding joy, and that his joy, the joy that, that we have in him, is it overwhelms uh, everything and anything that this world can throw at us. Father, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue our series on hymns this morning in Psalm chapter 42. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles, and we got a lot to do. This morning, we're going to dive deep into the things we usually would do anything we could to avoid. A pastor named Ed Copeland told me once that America's lament muscle has atrophied. So we're going to work that muscle out a little bit this morning. We're going to sit down with this hymn writer that we're going to study in the confusion and the turmoil that so often accompanies depression and heartache. We're going to look at what to do when you find yourself in those times where the world seems to be winning. And as a bonus, I'm going to ruin one of your favorite verses. So we've got a lot to do. This morning's hymn, it takes us right smack into the middle of the golden age of hymn writing. During Isaac Watts and William Cowper and Charles, uh, Charles Wesley, in the midst of these titans of English hymnody, was an unassuming woman named Anne Steele who lived an unassuming life. It has been said that if Isaac Watts is the father of English hymnody, that Anne is its mother. She was born in 1716 in Broughton, England, where her father sold timber so that he could preach uh, most of the time unpaid for 60 years. However, it did not take long before Anne began to experience the heartache and the pain and the suffering that led her to record the lyrics to this morning's hymn. When she was three years old, her mother died. When she was 19, she suffered a, a very severe injury to her hip that left her uh, handicapped and disabled and mostly homebound for the rest of her life. Shortly after that, when she was 21, her fiancé, Robert Elscore, drowned a few days before their wedding while swimming in a river. And Anne lived the rest of her life celibate. She helped her father at the church that he preached in until 1769, uh, until he died in 1769, after which she spent the remaining nine years of her life mostly in solitude at her brother's home. A life like this would lead just about anybody to a place such as Anne. Confusion, distress, heartache, loneliness. But thank God, a few years before she died, Anne poured all of this emotion into the hymn that we're going to study this morning and titled it, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. 
So before we go to the scriptures, what I want to do is briefly walk through this hymn so you can get a feel for the flavor of what she wrote, of what she wrote. Because what we hear in this hymn is a divided heart. What we hear is a heart that knows what's right and what's true, but doesn't feel it. A place where I know many of us have found ourselves. Now, if we look at the first stanza, it doesn't seem that unusual to us. She says, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. On thee when waves of trouble roll, my, my fainting hope relies. And, and thy word can bring sweet relief for every pain I feel. I think we've got the making of a pretty good line of Hallmark cards there. But what do I know? It's the second stanza where things start to get uncomfortable for us. Look at the second stanza. But oh, when, doomy doubt, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call, me, call thee mine. Wait a minute. You, I thought you just said that your fainting hope relies on him because his word was a sweet relief. Which is it? What's this but oh nonsense? Is God not enough for you? Our culture would tell us that if there's a, a but oh in your life, then you need to try harder. Take legal action, get some exercise, change your job, do something different, find new friends, move, do something. Our, our culture is really quick to join Job's friends and say that we must be doing something wrong if we have any extended period of discomfort. You're an American for goodness sake. You get one gloomy doubt per year. Any more than that and it's your fault. Because you're doing something wrong. But we know that's not how God works, don't we? There's something I know only a few of you in here have experienced, although my prayer is that all of you would be blessed with this experience someday. That experience in my prayer is this. Is that God, in spite of all your prayers and devotion, and against all of your striving and desire would allow you to tumble helplessly down the hole of catastrophe and heartache and anguish. Now I know, thanks Grant, but no thanks, you can keep that prayer to yourself. But the reason I hope everyone would experience that is this. God will gladly lead us into the wasteland of unquenched grief and heartache in order to teach us one of the most important lessons one could ever learn. He will gladly lead us into this wasteland of nothingness and confusion in order for us to see that he is still there with us. And he'll do this so that we can see even when we don't feel like it, everything we need is still right there with us in the midst of nothing. He'll strip us of everything we hold dear in order to show, you, show us the value of himself. And this hymn is like a road map of that wasteland. Look at the end of the second stanza where, again, there seems to be some relief. She says, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call me mine. She says, the springs of comfort, comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. 
Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. So I'll continue to cleave to thee, though, though I'm prostrate in the dust. But then in the third stanza, stanza, she starts to question again. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? She says, no steer, no still the, the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find excess to breathe my sorrows there. This, this hymn so accurately catches the, the ebb and flow of sorrow and grief. It's, it's like a tide falling and rising and falling and rising. It's uncontrollable. It's inevitable. It's, it's, it's terribly overwhelming. In one moment, hope prevails, and Anne confesses her fears to the Lord, but in the next, her grief rises again. At one moment, she believes God can bring relief to, to her worn-out soul, but in the next, she asks, where are you? She asks God where she could flee, and, and that, that His truth is what she longs for, she says. She reminds God of His promises, saying, Has, haven't you told me to seek you out? Yet she feels abandoned, and can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? It doesn't seem like he hears me. I strongly believe that at one time or another, every Christian will find themselves in this place. Maybe that's you this morning, in one way or another. In one moment, you, you feel comfortable and, and open to bring all your pain and sorrow to God. You're convinced that your feelings of abandonment and despair are unfounded. And you catch this passing glimpse that God is there. Yet simultaneously it evaporates and the grief and the silence you feel, it just won't loosen its grip. And you're left feeling alone and unable to shake off the, the confusion you feel. I hope like me, when you hear this hymn, you hear someone with a divided heart who's arguing with themselves. I know this is right, but I don't feel it. Ever been there? I know this is what I should feel, but I don't. That's exactly where the psalmist finds himself in Psalm 42 and 43. Unable to shake off the doubt and the grief and the confusion of his circumstances, yet at the same time he knows how he should feel. Look at the first verse of, of Psalm 42. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. Now, I know many of you, somewhere around your house, if I looked hard enough, I would find something crocheted or painted or stitched or hung on your refrigerator that, that has this, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. It's, you know, that, that chorus that you would sing like 400 times at your youth group retreat on Saturday night, you know. As the deer panted, and again, as the, and you get the rounds going, and you're just like, oh. It's this image we get of this cute little deer walking around in this very, you know, this lush forest, and he bends his head down to get a drink from the cool creek, and it's all this very beautiful and, and serene thing, and it reminds us of how much we, we long for God, and how much we want God and desire Him. I hate to ruin that verse for you. Let's keep reading because that's not really what it means. 
He says in verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So when the psalmist says, like a deer, don't think of this deer casually wandering through the forest, you know, with their Yeti cup fully topped off with some iced tea and this peaceful scene. The psalmist is describing a mangy, weak, stumbling deer dying of thirst because they can't find water. It's a deer wandering through the desert, not the forest. Disappointed again and again and again by this mirage that that seems to give the hope of water and then fails. Where are you, God? I'm dying, is what this psalmist is saying. He says in verse 3, the only thing I've had to drink are the tears that happen to flow into my mouth. In verse 4, I have this distant memory of, of when things were so good. I remember coming to church. I remember being overwhelmed with joy. I remember my life having meaning and purpose. I remember leading and encouraging others to follow me in that joy. But that is a distant memory, he says. Right now, glad shouts and songs of praise are only an echo. You ever been there? Joy and peace and hope seem like one of those dreams you were awoken from and you can't go back to sleep. You see, our culture... One of the great deceptions, let me put it this way, that our culture has afforded us is the ability to insulate ourselves from this kind of pain. We have been given the ability to ensure and to work and to choose whether or not we feel some of these things. And part of that insulation that our culture has afforded is our culture allows us the privacy and the means to to shove these things in the closet and act like they don't exist. Sure, there are those times no one else is around and, 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 and you can't hold that door shut any longer and that weight of pain and doubt, it comes crashing down on us. But as soon as that phone rings, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? We put the mask back on. Now, I know men, we don't have feelings of doubt or pain or suffering. I know that. We just have alcohol and drug and porn addictions. Then we yell at other people. But we never feel depression or heartache. But this psalmist is in a wasteland of grief that is full of these these mirages that 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 seem to give the seem to imply hope. They only produce further discouragement. The despair quenching water of God and fellowship is just always over the next horizon. But I want you to see, look, that's how he feels But I want you to see what he knows. He knows how he should feel. So he argues and pleads and begs himself to feel what he knows. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Just like our, our, our hymnist, just like Anne, 
He's not there. He, he can't get there. So he continues in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's saying again, I remember when I was there, when I was at the temple of the Lord, but now I'm not. I can't even see it from where I am. Do you remember the flowing streams that he longed for like a deer back in verse 1? Well, all he feels now are the crashing waves of grief and despair that the Lord is allowing to wash over him. Rather than a cool drink of God, he feels like he's drowning under these waves. And all he can hear is the pounding silence of God's absence. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, now listen to the irony, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He commands his steadfast love to be present. His song is with me at night. And I say to that rock, my God, where are you? I know you're here and I don't feel it. Do you hear the contradiction and the confusion, the, the argument that this man is having with himself? My mind knows he's my rock, but I feel like I'm standing on sand. Ed and I were talking about this a few days ago. Have you ever wondered why people can drown in the Rio Grande when it's like three feet deep? Well, if you've ever stood up right in the Rio Grande, one of the things you know is that the, the bed of the Rio Grande is just several feet of sand. And as soon as you stand there for just maybe a couple of seconds, the, the river washes the sand out from under your feet. And it's like you're on this evaporating treadmill. You can't keep your footing. It's very, very difficult. That's what the psalmist is feeling, like, like what he's standing on is just constantly getting washed out from under him. And as soon as he feels like he's got something firm, it gets washed out again. My mind knows he loves me, but all I feel is the oppression of my enemies. My mind knows he's there, but all I hear are my enemies saying, where is this God you keep droning on about? It's like a mortal wound and he can't stop the bleeding. His mind knows the truth, but all he feels is hope and peace just leaking out of him. I want to tell you a secret that I know. A secret that I know about many of you. I know that for many of you right now, it feels like your life is falling apart. You feel like your life is, is like a puzzle where as soon as you get a few pieces laid out, someone knocks the board off the table and it tumbles all over the floor. I know that some of you are doing everything you can to shove down the feelings that your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. I know that some of you are desperately trying to shake off the despair that your kids are not following Jesus. I know that some of you feel stuck in the mire of uselessness and apathy. Your life seems to have no meaning. And I know that everyone struggles with that sin you can't seem to conquer. 
It's inflicted this mortal wound, and no matter how hard you try, you feel like it's eating you alive. But that's not the secret that I know. That's just something that I know. What I know is that for most of you, you still have hope. You still believe that there is a way out. That there is a solution or a strategy you can employ to to satiate the, the, the crushing pain these experiences and circumstances continue to bring on your life. That's still not the secret that I know. The secret that I know is that you still believe that you can fix it. The secret that I know is that you still believe that you can solve the problem. The secret that I know is that you still think I can convince them. I can do this. I can not do that. I can, I can change this. I can fix that. You still think tomorrow I can stop doing this or I can start doing this or I can stop thinking that. As American Christians, God has to rip our hands out of our bootstraps. The secret that I know is that many of you think that the solution to your sorrow and your heartache and confusion is exactly what the world told you it should be. That it lies in the fixing or the accomplishing or the changing of of your whatever it is here on earth that's causing the pain. Fix your circumstance and you'll be happy. If I just keep walking, I'll find some water. If if I just keep hoping, I'll, I'll finally get on that rock. If I just keep fixing and trying and striving, I'll get something firm to stand on. Yet over and over and over again, we find ourselves along with with Anne Steele saying, but oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hope declines. Deep in the private thoughts and feelings of our hearts, you find yourselves right next to this psalmist stuck in this revolving door arguing with yourself. Like verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? I'm trying really hard. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And then in chapter 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Wait a minute. You're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? That doesn't sound like a refuge. That sounds like someone who is confused. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So what do you do? What do you do when your mind is there? When your mind is telling you hope in God, but your heart isn't. What do you do when you know how you should feel? You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You know what scripture says, but your heart isn't there yet. You don't feel it. I want you to notice the shift in the psalmist's gaze at the end of chapter 43. Notice the 
absence of the horizontal and the appearance of the vertical. Notice where he looks for this solution in verse 3. He says to God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. First, he asks God to send him the light of truth. He knows the problem is not that God is absent, but that he can't see him. He knows that God is there, but it's his own spiritual darkness that has obscured him. Paul prayed for this exact same thing in Ephesians 1.18. He said, he prayed that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he is calling you. That's not something we see naturally. It has to be the power of God that enlightens our hearts. Listen, the psalmist is asking God to save him from a far worse enemy than his adversaries could ever be. He's praying that God would save him from a darkness that makes the world seem bigger than God. He's praying that God would save him and would illuminate for him uh, the, the lie that the world is more important than God and that he needs what the world has to offer more than God. He's asking God to save him and to show him and to illuminate the truth. To save him from his flesh that, that, that causes him to lower his gaze from the one who sits on the throne. He knows the light of the truth that God is far more beautiful than what this world has to offer. He knows that's the light of the truth that he needs. And he knows that light is what he needs to illuminate the darkness that his soul is stuck in. That's the first thing he does is he prays for the light of God's truth. But second, look where the psalmist says the light of that truth will lead him. Beginning of verse 4, he says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. The altar is where animals die. As far as he was concerned, it's where life ended bloodily. It's where an innocent life ceased in order to atone for the guilty life of another. And in the midst of his pain, this is where the psalmist knows he will find exceeding joy. But how, how can that be? How can a place of blood and death be where the psalmist finds exceeding joy? Well, he knows that the joy of the forgiveness of his sins overwhelms the darkness of his circumstances. He knows the forgiveness of sin is the one brighter joy that the darkness here on earth cannot obscure. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be lessened. It is exceeding. But you see, the psalmist finds himself needing to argue himself that. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it regarding this particular psalm. He said this, and I quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you awake in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. 
Now, this man's treatment in this psalm was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. To put it into our vernacular, what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is that occasionally we have to tell ourselves, pipe down, self. I'm done listening to you. Cool it with the fear and the sorrow and the hopelessness and listen up because now I'm going to tell you something. We have to say that to ourselves. So, so what do you do when your mind is there and your heart is not? We pray for God to send us his illuminating truth. And we preach that truth to our hearts. And then we do the most un-American thing we can think of. We sit at the altar of the forgiveness of our sins and we wait. We stop striving, we stop struggling, we stop trying, we wait. We wait for the grace of that forgiveness to chase away the darkness. Let me show you what that looks like for us on this side of the cross. Because it may not be that obvious in this passage at first, but watch this. Notice how in the first stanza that psalmist describes himself as this deer just panting and, and dying for water. He yearns for this water, but it's absent. It's like he's in this desert wasteland of grief and, and mirages only produce this further discouragement. Jesus told us that he is the water of life and that he will never leave us. We don't have to search for the living water. It is with us constantly. Notice in the second stanza that this psalmist called God his rock, but then he asked, why have you forgotten me? It's the same word that Jesus used once in his life. The psalmist says that God is his rock, but he feels like he's standing on sand. But scripture tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone that we stand on and we will never be forsaken because Jesus cried out in our place, why have you forsaken me? We will never hear those words from our God if we are in Christ. So what do we do when we find ourselves in these times of grief and doubt? We pray for God to send that illuminating truth. We go to the altar of, of grace, of the forgiveness of our sins. We preach to ourselves, pipe down self. Now I'm going to talk and I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you that my sins have been forgiven by his blood and there is nothing that can darken that truth. And my joy is found in that and nothing else. And then we do the hardest part. We wait. We wait. We join Anne Steele in the fourth stanza of our hymn. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. We preach the truth of the riches of God's grace to ourselves over and over and over again. And we wait on the Lord. We sit down at his feet in front of this, his mercy seat and we wait. 
We wait for the Lord to grow our affections for him and to loosen our affections for the world. We wait for the Lord to change our heart to match what our mind knows. We wait for the Lord to take the truth we know and to make it the truth we feel. But listen, I want you to really understand the glory of that gospel. This is so important. You will never see a lighthouse on a coastline that is is clear and calm and peaceful all the time. Lighthouses are for coastlines that are dangerous and darkened and covered in fog and, and, and treacherous. This is the glory of the gospel that we have. The glory of this gospel is not that it'll take away all of your problems. Because this gospel is not some cheap gospel that only works when everything is perfect. It's not some fake plastic gospel that doesn't mean anything if your life is is not working out right. No, the glory of this gospel of Jesus Christ is that it will fulfill and quench and satisfy and shine and illuminate in the midst of the chaos and the fear and the destruction that is raging all around you. It is an exceeding joy. He doesn't take away the storm. Jesus is the rock in the storm. He doesn't take away the wasteland. He is living water in the desert. He doesn't remove the sorrow. No, it's just like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 10. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's both and, not either or. Because our hope is not in the circumstances, but in Christ. And as long as we're still trying to fix the circumstances, we will never see Christ for who he truly is. The joy that overwhelms the circumstances. So we wait. We wait for our heart to feel that. We wait for our heart to feel that the joy of our salvation is the exceeding joy that that overwhelms the pain and the heartache of this life. And to close, I'd like to say that even though the psalmist's words are the same, I'd like to think that his tone has changed. Meaning now, instead, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 43, instead of thinking of it as confusion and uncertainty, I'd like to look at verse 5 as an argument. Now the psalmist is saying, Pipe down, soul. Why are you so cast down? And why are you in turmoil within me? You will hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would... uh, you would do this for us, that you would illuminate this truth in our hearts. Most of all, Father, I I pray because we need your spirit to even begin. We need your truth to know that we can just sit and wait until you work in our lives. We need your spirit to give us the courage to wait for your truth to to make its way to our hearts. Father, I I pray that, that 
You would work a miracle in, in the lives in here today that are feeling despair and destruction and heartache that you would show them not only in their minds but then grow in their hearts that because of our, our Savior Jesus Christ that the forgiveness of sins is the joy that we're looking for. And on that truth alone, we can stand in the midst of any storm this earth can throw at us. That one day, Father, we will see your face. You will call us sons and daughters. And this pain in this life will be over forever. I pray, Lord, that that light would shine out, not, not, not weakly, but strongly. That people would see the strength of the light of your gospel standing in the midst of the storm and not in the absence of it. That they would see the brightness of your gospel in the midst of darkness and not in the absence of it. Father, all these things you promised to do for us through our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name that, that we pray.